0: You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I received a piece of work from the desk of Philip Saunders, director at the Investment Institute at 91 in London. And it begins like this. Much of the current geopolitical malaise is the result of the rise of China, one of 91's five major structural macro themes from the road to 2030. And... I'm going to hand over to Philip right now, who's with me, and why China was one of these major themes, Philip. Well, I think that um,
1: clearly the rise of China has been one of the most significant economic um, and indeed geopolitical events of the last 30 years. And, you know, the emergence of China and the speed with which it's happened is remarkable, as is its scale. So we've seen other nations uh, emerge uh, rapidly, like, for example, Japan, uh, and that was on a significant scale. Uh, we've also seen the likes of South Korea. that They pale into insignificance when compared to China. You know, this country of one and a half billion people, you know, which is now basically the second largest economy in the world. Um, and it was nowhere 30 years ago. So, we've seen a very significant shift in terms of the balance of economic power globally uh, over this period. Um, And China has emerged as a, you know, really uh, as the first real contender with the US. For the sort of top spot or the top two spots and America, uh, having initially embraced this, there was the expression Chimerica, which uh, showed this sort of laissez-faire attitude to uh, the emergence uh, of China, you know, which helped China to develop, to drag hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Um, But um, the relationship soured Uh, In the latter part of the Obama second uh, Obama's administration, and then Trump came along and the relationship between China and the U.S. was fundamentally changed. It moved to a much more adversarial stance as America felt threatened by China's rise.
0: It's very interesting because, as you know from me having interviewed you on numerous occasions over the years, I like to use an analogy. And it's almost like a meteorological analogy that I want to use now because there's the old high pressure which has now become low pressure and high pressure forming somewhere else. And when low and high pressure collide in meteorological terms, climate terms, weather terms rather, there's there's usually quite a storm. Is there a storm or has China's recent sort of pullback economically uh, sort of mitigated uh, some of the potential for a storm so i think that the,
1: the, the you know i'm not sure if storm is the right thing i think it's more about the collision of tectonic plates and you have periods of calm and then basically you have periods of uh, pretty volatile activity and notwithstanding the fact that china basically has struggled recently economically um Obviously, the sort of lockdown over COVID didn't help, and China's economic model has clearly been challenged. In the sense, you can't just go on doing the same thing; you've got to move towards a more consumer-led economy, and they're finding that pretty difficult. Also, obviously, they had a massive property bubble, and you know, deflating that is proving to be pretty challenging. However, the game is on; the contest with America is very much on. And they don't uh, necessarily buy into America's view about, you know, how the world should be, if you like, managed, you know, which is a very sort of Occidentalist kind of approach that's been the case for probably five centuries. The West has sort of ruled. um, And uh, obviously, America is the leader of the West. Uh, But if you look at um, some of the things that have been happening uh, more recently, um, particularly over support for Ukraine, you know, it was very much a sort of uh, West and the rest kind of split with China very much on the side of the rest. And a lot of other countries don't really buy in to sort of, you know, the American domination of how rules are made internationally and international institutions, et cetera. Uh, so there's a lot of resistance to uh, to the old world order. And China is, if you like, leading the opposition. So there is now this sort of bipolar contest between China, supported by a whole range of particularly global south type uh, uh, nations, and America supported by you know basically Europe, Canada, Japan, um, a number of other Asian allies. So the world is sort of splitting into this sort of bipolar relationship in terms of uh, um, of you know geopolitical tension. Um, uh, But the split is uh, more bipolar at that level uh, than it is at the economic level, uh, which is more complicated and clearly moving to a much more sort of multipolar kind of environment.
0: Why is China siding itself in the Ukraine-Russia conflict as it seemingly is? Is it because it really believes that Russia is right or is it just trying to stick it to the United States and Europe? So I think that
1: China's uh, position vis-a-vis Ukraine is that they you know obviously claim to be neutral, but they clearly have a sort of Russian bias. and without Chinese support, you know particularly economically, this thing probably would have been over by now. Um, but uh, China has been sort of careful to sort of play things by the book, uh, and so there's been a lot of sort of uh, you know not necessarily support in terms of military equipment. Um, but it's been support nonetheless to keep, sort of allow Russia to remain in the game. However, you know, actually, what's happened is that uh, Russia was already in China's camp before the conflict arose. And in fact, actually, I think sort of Putin, you know, has assumed their support. Um, and it certainly suits China to have uh, a weakened Russia. That is extremely dependent on exporting what it produces, which is predominantly sort of oil and uh, natural resources to China. And so therefore this, you know, having ending up in a situation of Russian vassalage is great news for China because it allows it to um, increase its dominance of the Eurasian sort of area. And it provides a source of raw materials uh, that can't be cut off by the U.S. Navy just arriving in the Malacca Straits. So there's a strategic element to it as well.
0: Is energy at the core of that? I noticed the World Bank has recently, last couple of days, come out with a prediction that if the Israel-Hamas conflict uh, continues, then oil could go to $150 a, a barrel. And you know, we've, we saw a spike to $121 a barrel when Russia first invaded Ukraine. So is oil and gas at the center of this for China? It's a
1: significant strategic interest uh, of China's. China wants to secure um, supplies that can't be interrupted to itself. It's a massive energy importer. Obviously, it's engaged in a a significant drive to build out its renewable power, particularly nuclear power, in order to reduce its energy dependence on importing energy. So for the time being, being able to import more Russian gas and oil suits China because it makes its supply of those uh, commodities uh, much more secure than is currently the case.
0: You talk about tectonic plates and it's it's very interesting, uh, first sentence in another paragraph in your piece. Since so, so recent events have accelerated the move towards a more multipolar world, Washington consensus style globalization is waning as regional trade booms. So it's almost as though there's going to be lots of, of little regional centers rather than, uh, as you said in the in the first sentence, a globalized world.
1: Yes. So I think that, um, you know, the previous Washington set consensus environment was globalization on America's terms. Mm. So it was great because America could sort of import cheap stuff um, and sell high value added stuff to the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, and that's frankly been fantastic for America. Um, uh, now, I think that, you know, we've already seen this sort of move towards much more regional trade with the rise of China, which is, fundamentally reconfigured, obviously, trade internationally because, you know, across Asia, Japan, you know, America used to be Japan's sort of major trading partner sort of 10, 15 years ago. Uh, Now, Japan's major trading partner is China. Uh, And the same can be said of, uh, you know, a number of most countries across the Asian region. So you've seen what a colleague of mine calls a sort of reorientation you know, with the center of gravity shifting much more to Asia of world trade and, you know, much more intra-regional trade in that area. And the same thing's happening in other regions. You know, obviously, you've got China's trading relationship with Africa, for example. You've got the emergence of India becoming sort of uh, much more important pretty rapidly in global trade. Uh, And of course, you've got, you know, trading relationships between Latin American countries, such as Brazil uh, and China. I mean, if you look at, Brazil's exports of agri-products you know they've gone through the roof and you know even with the Chinese economy in a period of weakness so the patterns of world trade are shifting and they're becoming a lot more regional uh, and globalization is taking on a different hue and the Chinese are very well positioned in this sort of context because you know they're obviously a major trading partner with all these countries particularly across the global south and they produce the kind of goods that uh, developing nations need, and they provide them very cost effectively. So it's things like Huawei for digital infrastructure, for example. China has emerged as the world's largest auto exporter, uh, and this is predominantly EVs, you know, an area that they dominate. So I think globalization, you know, in its traditional form is dying, i.e., Asian nations exporting cheap stuff uh, to America. Um, You know, you could say that actually global trade is very, very much alive. It's just much more of it's happening on a regional basis or a south to south basis.
0: Yeah, and we haven't even mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative of China, but that's for another podcast. You say the new five-dimensional world of debts, deficits, declining demographics, decarbonisation and deglobalization implies inflation will not fall back to previous levels. And we will likely live in a world with moderately higher inflation and higher cost of capital than was the case in the post-global financial crisis period. That's quite a statement.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, I strongly believe that this is likely to be the case. So, you know, the West's response to the emergence of China is really sort of being seen in, you know, the shift in, you know, the political landscape in Western countries, many Western countries. So you've seen this sort of, uh, you know, middle classes in the West have lost out, you know, because China's been able to produce the stuff much more cheaply. And that has undercut wages and growth, actually in the West. So growth has been relatively anemic as China has sort of, you know, grown in a sort of blistering fashion. And this, you know, has, I think, has been directly uh, responsible for the fractiousness of Western politics, because you've got massive debt buildups, you know, in an attempt to actually shore up growth, uh, and to paper over the sort of cracks in the middle classes so that means that debt levels have increased that's been amplified obviously by covid which was obviously a sort of you know you know separate event and so we end up with this sort of sense of instability in the west which again is sort of i think you know can be significantly attributed to the emergence of china to the fact that china could produce stuff incredibly cheaply because of very low labor rates because of chinese you know, had a very productive workforce and the, the sheer scale. So that's basically had a destabilizing impact. Trump is an example of this. German politics is an example of this. UK politics, you know, again, basically is sort of messy. So we're dealing with the consequences of, you know, this, you know, the emergence of China. Uh, and I think people don't really see it like that. But that's what's been going on. It's not just China competing with China in the broader world, Yes, which is tough, particularly if there are a lot of state subsidies involved. Uh, So the sort of liberal capitalist model really has sort of broken down to a great extent. And we're sort of trying to feel our way to sort of understand how we're going to compete in this new world.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, I normally end on asking you what that means for... Your investment strategies at 91, but I think it's too complicated to do that and probably not appropriate, as this was a geopolitical uh, podcast. You do end by saying that the dollar is still going to be the world's currency, the world's store of value, along with, obviously, traditional assets like gold, uh, for example. And is that your passing thought?
1: Yes, I mean, I think that you know, news of the sort of demise of the dollar is sort of greatly exaggerated. But it's clearly being contested. You know, and uh, at the moment, we've seen a lot of (laughs) de-euroization, you know, either use of the euro in trade has collapsed. But the dollar's position, I think, is pretty strong. That's not to say that the dollar can't weaken. The dollar's been in a massive bull market for the last seven years or so. And, you know, as and when U.S. interest rates peak and recede, uh, then I suspect that the dollar will, you know, enter a, a sort of cyclical bear market. Um, It's not guaranteed, but there's a reasonable chance that that will be the case. And there'll be a lot of de-dollarization narrative will sort of come back again and again. But I think that, you know, that's something potentially for the future. And the Chinese, you know, obviously, they they want to use renminbi more uh, to trade because it makes sense for them. But the quid pro quo for that, you know, is that doing that with a closed capital account, you know, is difficult. So. I don't think it suits the Chinese for the RMB to sort of suddenly emerge uh, as uh, a dominant sort of world reserve currency. Uh, that's going to be a slower process. And indeed, in the next decade, you know, China has a massive problem with uh, its demographic. So these things aren't a given. You know, China
0: basically is, might be peaking a bit early. Philip, thank you so much for a fascinating and complicated analysis. Philip Saunders is director of the Investor Institute at 91 in London. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position,